Well, thank you, Russell. Good morning to you, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3 for a message titled, The Born Again Formality. The Born Again Formality. What a joy in our world today. We get 15 hours of sunlight. Spring is here. The trees that were dormant through the winter are now full of life. They appear lifeless through winter, but by the grace and goodness of God, the trees are filled with beautiful colors today and have been for several weeks. It's almost as if they have been born again. Consider the picture of regeneration in the story of the caterpillar who crawls around in a very meager, very difficult existence, eating only milkweed for two weeks. They're born as larvae, hatching from an egg with one job and one purpose, consume food, get big and fat. The face, uh, they, they do, the larvae, face difficulties. They never know their mom or dad. Their siblings die rapidly all around them. And perhaps the greater difficulty in the life of a caterpillar is when a little child picks them up, puts them inside of a glass jar filled with dirt, rocks, sticks, leaves, and sprinkled with grass clippings. But one day, the life of the caterpillar takes a radical turn, as you well know. No more crawling and eating. Instead, they hang themselves upside down from a branch on a tree and weave a chrysalis around themselves. Two weeks later, after having become a pool of mush, they reemerge from the chrysalis as a butterfly. It's a marvel of God's creation. From crawling to flying is a picture of regeneration. The old has passed away. The new has come. The caterpillar was effectively born again into a butterfly by the choice and grace of God. The life cycle of the butterfly paints a picture of a spiritual world reality for us. You must be born again. By the grace of God, you must be spiritually rebirthed. After you've been born into this world, you must be spiritually birthed again. Our Father in heaven delights himself in physical birth and even more so in spiritual birth. Take, for instance, the nation of Israel, his chosen people. Are you aware that the nation of Israel was crushed by the Romans in A.D. 70 and the Israelites were scattered to the four corners of the world? Are you aware that on this day, May 14, 1948, by the grace of God, Israel was rebirthed and resurrected as a nation into their homeland after 2,000 years of absence? Brothers and sisters, don't ever lose sight of the grace of God for those who are called, for those who are chosen even for his nation, Israel. Don't ever underestimate the eternal implications and eschatological value of 1948 and the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Truly out of nothing, God powerfully, providentially raised their scattered dead bones to life along the lines that we read in Ezekiel 37. God allowed for the persecution of the Jews by Hitler and Nazi Germany, which resulted in the zeal and resolve on the part of Jews and many other nations to restore the Jews to their homeland. Israel was born again on May 14, 1948, resurrected when David Ben-Gurion, the Jewish agency chairman, proclaimed the state of Israel, becoming its first premier. Rebirth. Second birth. Spiritual birth. Born again. These are the topics for this morning as we've come to John chapter 3 and the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Brothers and sisters, as we approach this text, what do you know about salvation? What do you know about spiritual rebirth? Young men, I'm not talking about respawning after you've been killed in Apex or Rocket League. It's not that. Why is spiritual rebirth necessary? Can man spiritually rebirth himself? How is anyone spiritually born again? These are the questions I hope that you have as we come to this text because these are the questions that the Apostle John is going to answer in John chapter 3 as we look at and consider what I call Jesus' premier salvation analogy. The birthing analogy, the rebirthing analogy. 
At John chapter 3, you are in Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples during the first year of Jesus' public ministry. Now, this section of text is commonly referred to as the Cana cycle because Jesus' ministry began in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned water into wedding wine in John chapter 1. Turning water into wedding wine was the first of seven signs that John records in his gospel. Jesus will return to Cana of Galilee for sign number two in John chapter 4. Between these first two signs of seven signs that John will record in this gospel, John is going to supplement his seven signs that prove Jesus' deity with additional demonstrations of Jesus' authority, zeal, teaching, counseling, and evangelism. John had a great purpose for sharing seven signs and many colorful stories about Jesus' ministry. His purpose is plainly stated in John 20, 31, where he says, These seven signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. For the Apostle John, partial belief in Jesus is of no value. In fact, partial belief in Jesus is hurtful to you. John demands that his readers come to know what he knows. Jesus is God. The whole focus of chapter 1 is to set your mind, before you see the signs, to set your mind on this fact, this preeminent fact, Jesus is God. The Apostle John takes pains to present the eyewitness perspectives of men who came to see that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Word made flesh, the unique God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and from Jesus' own lips, that messianic prophecy title, the Son of Man. Leon Morris says, right from the opening verses of the Gospel of John, we have, uh, John has concern to impress upon his readers the surpassing excellence of Jesus. John knows this fact. Jesus is God. And he knows it so well. Look what he says in John 2.23. He says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, who is God, on his part, he was not believing himself in them, for he knew all men, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man. For Jesus himself knew the contents of a man's heart. He knew what was in man. John declares Jesus' omniscience in this passage at the end of chapter 2. Jesus is all-knowing. He has the ability to see into and read the hearts of men accurately. How, you might ask? Well, Jesus is the creator of all men. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Of course, he knows what's in men's hearts. He knows what's in the hearts of all human beings. He made us. And when you really think about your own frail form that you sit in right now, you have to understand that your vertical posture in that chair is only possible because Jesus is allowing it to happen. He sustains us. And over the course of the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, John's des desires to report on Jesus' powerful use of his omniscience of all men as he engages several people in very important conversations. Men like Nicodemus, then a woman at Samaria, the Samaritan woman, and then we'll circle back around to Cana of Galilee and he'll talk to a royal official. And isn't it interesting? The, these conversations happen, as you see, in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and even into Gentile homes north of Samaria, you see these concentric circles begin to form. And this sounds a lot like Jesus' commission to the disciples before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Andreas Kostenberger notes this. He says, John shows Jesus' mission from Jerusalem to Samaria to the Gentiles. This shows that the early church's mission, as narrated in the book of Acts, is, ground, is grounded in the mission of none other than the earthly mission of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' earthly mission included many evangelistic conversations, several of which are recorded by the Apostle John in chapters 3 and 4. R.C. Sproul says, in these meetings, in these evangelistic conversations... Jesus pierced the hearts of those with whom he spoke and indicated that he knew what was going on in their lives without even need of asking them a question. Jesus' first personal evangelism conversation is with a man, is with a prominent man, a ruler of men in Jerusalem, a man named Nicodemus. 
the repetition of the word man is unquestionably holding John's thoughts together between chapters 2 and chapter 3. John MacArthur says the placing of the chapter break here is unfortunate since the story of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is logically tied to the previous section as a result of the word man in verses 23 through 25. With this in mind, brothers and sisters, we must read the certainty of second birth as explained by the Apostle John who records the following conversation about salvation that arose between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1 reads as follows. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is the case with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe those, how will you believe if I begin telling you heavenly spiritual things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that, whatever, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life." I do believe that the words of Jesus end here at verse 15. I know that many of your Bibles have red letters or quotes that indicate Jesus' speaking continues through verse 21. However, I'm convinced by the Greek grammar of the text and the reasoning of R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, Leon Morris, and Andreas Kostenberger. Kostenberger saying the following. These verses should not be put in red letters, as th- that's the verses of 16 through 21, as they are almost certainly the evangelist's commentary, the words of John the Apostle, which in no way would detract from the incredible declaration made in John 3.16. Brothers and sisters, before we get to the great joy that we know exists in John 3.16, we cannot miss the content and the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15. If you enjoy the thought of salvation that comes from John 3.16, as we all do, you must equally love the salvation described by Jesus in John 3.1-15, because the salvation spoken of in 1-15 through and verses 16-18 through is the same exact salvation. And I'm truly amazed by the number of Christians who divorce John 3.16 from the context and would suggest that salvation is for whoever will choose to have it into their heart, for whoever will accept Jesus into their heart. This whole context of salvation tells us plainly that belief comes from Jesus' spiritual rebirthing of men. Salvation and saving faith are gifts given by God to undeserving sinners, not to the religious and to the self-righteous. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that salvation is entirely one-sided, God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, and Calvinistic. There is no better way to explain salvation than Jesus does in this premier salvation analogy. In these words... Jesus' explanation is entirely what we, 2,000 years after this, would call Calvinistic. At John 3, we've entered into a Calvinism 101 classroom taught by Jesus himself, in which he gives the premier salvation analogy, that of second birth, because the illustration goes like this. 
Friend, what amount of participation did you have in your physical birth? The same is true of your participation in your spiritual birth. That's the beauty of the analogy. That's the power in the text. The greatness of John 3, 1 through 15, is found in the clarity and the mystery of salvation wrapped up in thick irony, words of double meaning, distinct characters, and the compounding, contrasted themes of man and God, light and dark, day and night, belief and unbelief, sinners and salvation. Someone should inevitably ask the question, why does Jesus need to teach Calvinism to Nicodemus? Why does Nicodemus need to know about spiritual rebirthing? This is truly one of the greatest conversations in the Bible. What makes this salvation conversation so great? This conversation is exceptional because of the clarity in Jesus' premier salvation analogy. In our text today, Jesus shares three terms of salvation which highlight the exclusivity of eternal life. It is in our text today that Jesus clarifies three conditions of salvation which beget belief in spirit-driven rebirth. I'll say that again so that you have it for yourself. In our text today, Jesus shares three terms of salvation which highlight the exclusivity of eternal life. Jesus clarifies in our text three conditions of salvation which beget belief in spirit-driven rebirth. Now, what three terms of salvation highlight the exclusivity of eternal life and spirit-driven rebirth? Jesus shares in our text, first, the born-again formality in verses 1 through 3. Second, the born-again fraternity in verses 4 through 8. And third, the born-again finality in verses 9 through 15. The born-again formality, the born-again fraternity, and the born-again finality. This is the outline for our text in verses 1 through 15 of John 3. Now it will take me at least three Sundays to preach through these three terms of salvation in John 3, 1 through 15. For today, it will be sufficient if we can try to cover point number one, which is the first of three terms of salvation in the title of your message today, the born-again formality in verses 1 through 3. The born-again formality. On May 14, 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark set out from St. Louis, Missouri, having been commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson to explore the Pacific Northwest. What an incredible task in front of them. They were truly walking into uncharted territory, and the task was far greater than they could have possibly imagined. However, Lewis and Clark prevailed over the weather and the terrain of the Rocky Mountains and the Clearwater, Snake, and Columbia Rivers, returning to St. Louis from having reached the Pacific Ocean in Portland, Oregon, in just over two and a half years with a wealth of information about the vast wilderness of land that exists between Portland and St. Louis. Lewis and Clark were frontiersmen, well prepared and equipped for the challenge of exploration that they faced. And the same is not true of Nicodemus, who came by night to explore a salvation conversation with Jesus about all the signs that he was performing in Jerusalem at Passover in AD 30. Nicodemus is swept away to silence in this conversation because of his spiritual ignorance. He's swept away by a spiritual rebirthing flood, which Jesus breaks loose on his head to destroy all the pride in his heart. This is the heart of a man who represents the spiritual condition of God's chosen people 2,000 years ago and the spiritual condition of maybe even some of us here in this room today. To prevent our own drowning in a spiritual flood of ignorance, what must we know about the spiritual rebirthing formality that Nicodemus did not? First, we need to consider who is Nicodemus? The Apostle John is not slack in telling us about this man. He says in John 3, 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Anthropos is the Greek word for man. Anthropos shows up eight times to this point in John's gospel in just these 2.1 chapters. Most importantly at John 2.25, where Jesus is said to know all men, even what is inside of men. And here in Nicodemus, the Apostle John, has found a man. He's found a representative man. Leon Morris says Nicodemus is representative of Pharisaic Judaism and the old religion. 
Edward Klink says that he's representative of the ruling authorities. Andreas Kostenberger says he is representative of people who profess to be open to Jesus but lack true spiritual insight and understanding and therefore lack spiritual regeneration as well. James Boyce says Nicodemus is representative of all men standing as sinners before God. And so between these men, these commentators, you see they understand Nicodemus is representative of a lot of people from individual groups of Jews all the way to all humankind. There's something about Nicodemus and all y'all. All of these men see Nicodemus as the target, you could say, even of John 1.11, where John says in John 1.11, Jesus came to what was his own, that is, his own people. And those who were his own people, they did not receive Jesus. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 15? We'll look at verse 12. R.C. Sproul says Nicodemus was a man of high authority in the religious leadership of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, skilled as a theologian. And at the same time, James Montgomery Boyce would have you know, Nicodemus had everything, and yet he was a failure spiritually because he had never found God. And the reason why is because he kept trying on his own terms. Yikes! How could that possibly be the case Nicodemus, from his position, from his authority, John tells us Nicodemus was one of the most religious men around in his day. He was a Pharisee and yet spiritually clueless? How could that be the case? Friends, it is the case. And what I would warn you, as we read through this text and study it today, is pay attention. Pay attention. Are you spiritually clueless yourself here this morning where you sit? What do we need to know about the Pharisees? What do you need to know about your own heart? The Pharisees were the theological conservatives among the Jews. They were the guys who held the highest view of Scripture and a literal interpretation of the text, which caused them to believe in the resurrection of the dead. Contrary to the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, because they were Sadducee. <laughs> Pharisees were only ever a group of 6,000 men or less. They were a small minority in Jerusalem. John MacArthur says, despite being the minority party, their popularity with the people gave them significant influence in the Sanhedrin. Ironically, it was their very zeal for the law that caused the Pharisees to become ritualized and perfectly external in their understanding of salvation. And what did Jesus say about the Pharisees during his ministry? You're in Matthew 15 at verse 12. Where after Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in this context, calling them hypocrites and telling them their doctrines are the commandments of men, not God, we read in verse 12 of chapter 15, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But Jesus answered the disciples and he said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus is saying the Pharisees planted themselves and their doctrines into positions of authority, serving, air quotes, serving all the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem. And yet they themselves are blind men spiritually, whose followers are also blind men spiritually. They will all fall into a spiritual pit. Where still, they will be uprooted by God, the Pharisees will, from their self-appointed authority in Jerusalem. Turn back in your Bibles to John 3.1. And not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, our text says that he was a ruler of the Jews, which means that even from the minority party, Nicodemus had a place on the Sanhedrin, the governing council of Jewish rabbis who ruled over the Jews. James Boyce says, in our day, we have a bad picture of the Pharisees primarily because of the harsh words Jesus spoke about them. In our minds, says Boyce, the word Pharisee is almost synonymous with hypocrite. It suggests ritualistic religion, the word Pharisee does. He goes on to say, in Jesus' time, the religion of Judaism was largely an ethical cult, and the Pharisees were the chief exponents of the ethical way of life. Yet in other ways, says Boyce, 
the Pharisees were probably the best people in the whole country because of their zeal and practice of the law, rigid adhering to the law. Leon Morris says, Nicodemus would have stressed the careful observance of the law and the traditions of the elders. For the loyal Pharisees, like Nicodemus, says Morris, for the loyal Pharisees, this way was the way of salvation. This way, doing, doing, doing. Works of the law, works of the law, clawing and scratching, performance, performance, doing. You see it? This is what Nicodemus believed was salvation. That's troubling. Nicodemus had a vested interest in Jesus' teachings, his doctrines, and his science. Nicodemus, oh, he did, because he is getting popular with the people Jesus is. This is troubling and scary for these men who have this rigid way of thinking about salvation. It's by works. We're the ones who own this path. Got to stay on our path. He's concerned about Jesus. What's he teaching out there? What are, what are his doctrines? What, what do these signs mean? Moreover, if Jesus' teachings aren't aligned with Nicodemus, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, then someone, friends, someone in this context 2,000 years ago, somebody's full of lies. Somebody's full of error, ignorance, and deceit. Somebody's lying. We're still, Nicodemus knows, because of the sinfulness of his own heart, that he has manufactured a salvation of his own that would fall into question and come crumbling down if Jesus is understanding salvation differently than the ruling Jews. Nicodemus doesn't want anyone questioning the salvation that he's formulated for himself and for his own little mind because in his formulation, he gets pride, prestige, compensation, housing. He gets honor, dignity, respect, title. He's got a lot at stake, this guy does. A lot at stake. And as a result, there is great need to approach Jesus, to confront Jesus, to discuss with Jesus, and to figure out if he is on the same team with the Sanhedrin and with the Pharisees. There's a great need for a conversation, even for confrontation. I often see the same need for conversation and even confrontation here at Community Bible Church. I see men and women come into our loving fellowship and readily embrace the warmth and kindness of our people with absolutely no desire to embrace the unity of our doctrine and our teaching as if somehow the two are disconnected. Our, our doctrine, our teaching is, it, it directly impacts the lives and hearts of our people, which makes the people kind and nice and gentle. That's how that fits together. Sadly, in two and a half years of ministry, many people have come to CBC of their, with their own manufactured salvation that runs in stark contradiction to Scripture. And instead of having the courage to defend their failed faith and receive the necessary correction that can lead to eternal life, many have packed their bags and walked away. Sadly, where Nicodemus had the courage, even in his error to boldly confront Jesus, some of you are more likely to run away rather than engage the elders in a serious conversation about salvation that could save your soul from hell and end your rebellion to Jesus. Some of you come to CBC because it's a social thing to do, because coming generates favor with mom and dad, brothers and sisters, especially, oh, especially on Mother's Day. Gotta come on Mother's Day. You come because you get to feel spiritual and religious for a couple of hours without ever being confronted about the failure of your faith. And friends, fr friend, truly, friends, friends, if this is you, I want you to know we are watching and we are concerned for the eternal state of your soul. And I would say, please don't run. Please, courageously, humbly engage in salvation conversations with your elders and even with those who are sitting immediately next to you. Now, I think we can all agree. Nicodemus did courageously, one night, engage in conversation with Jesus. The big question for us to consider is, did he humbly engage in conversation with Jesus? That's the big question for us. Did he humbly engage in conversation with Jesus? Our text says at John 3, 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, speculations abound on this point. 
Why come at night, Nicodemus? Is night simply a historical detail that John wants us to know? Or is there more to this word night? Is night the cloak of darkness? Is coming at night concern for people's opinions if they were to know this meeting was happening? Is it fear of identification being seen by others? Or is John's use of night symbolic even of the contrast between dark and light? Leon Morris says, it would be quite in his manner for John to have more than one of these meanings in mind. John MacArthur says, Nicodemus might not have wanted his coming to imply the approval of the entire Sanhedrin, nor did he want to risk incurring the disfavor of his fellow members. Nighttime would have afforded more time for conversation than during the day. The important point, however, is not when Nicodemus came, but that he came at all, says Pastor John. The important point, however, is not when Nicodemus came, but that he came at all. And I have to say this. This is the most critical point for me in the text. He came. I want you to think about that if you're in this room and you've spent a whole lifetime outside of the walls of a church. I want you to know how important it is that you came today. I want you to know how important it is that you came today. This is important. This man came. He came. Because the whole world of people out there that didn't come to church today and will not come to church today, but you did. Why? He came. You know, I remember very well the day of my salvation. I was a secular, humanist, evolutionist, atheist. And I had decided to attend an Answers in Genesis conference at Faith Bible Church in the summer of 1998. I came full of frustration ready for a conversation, prepared for verbal confrontation of the speaker. I really did. I sat right there in the front row down at Faith Bible Church. I can't even begin to tell you, brothers and sisters, how I know the Word of God powerfully assaulted and instantly corrected all of my hostility on that Friday night between 6 and 6.30. When you read, He came in the text, I want you to forever see and understand this, these two words indicate the providence and power of God. You can look at those words and you can ascribe them to Nicodemus, and that's very easy to do, but I never want you to miss this. When you see the words, he came, this is indicative of the providence and power and sovereignty of God to do the drawing and to do the calling of wicked and sinful men to himself. Nicodemus came. Because God wanted him to come, not necessarily because his motives were pure. Our God is so powerful, so sovereign, he works over, around, and through our hearts, our heart attitudes to get us where he wants us to be to serve his ultimate glory purposes. We have this story of Nicodemus because God's glory is found in the retelling of this story as we will see. And my great hope would be that God has brought one of you here today in your hostility, to crush your pride. I hope he brought one of you here today for that purpose. Friend, are you sitting here now in agreement or disagreement with the words that you're hearing? Did God poke and prod you to come today even in your hostility, rebellion, and sin against him? What are your motives for being with us this morning at CBC? Are, are you aware of God's motives for you? And let me ask you this question. Would it be wrong of my God to grace you today with salvation over the top of your objections and give to you eternal life? Can he do that? Can you stop him? <laughs> Don't get me started. Go back to the notes, Oliver. What were Nicodemus' motives? Why did he come to meet Jesus? Is Nicodemus in this moment filled with anger and pride or humility and patience? I'm asking you. I want you thinking about this with me. Let's walk through this text together. What are his motives? Is this story a picture of budding faith or a bold face-off? Is this attack or inquiry? Confrontation or curiosity? We know out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 34. What does Nicodemus say to Jesus when he came to Jesus at night? We read in John 3, 2. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, rabbi is a formal and polite term that means teacher. 
This is the same honorific title that the Jews would ascribe to Nicodemus himself when they would meet with him and talk with him in Jerusalem. We know indicates the thoughts and considerations of at least a small group of Sanhedrin members, likely Pharisees, who have together taken note of Jesus. And here Nicodemus is representing this small group. What do they note, these, this group of Pharisees? What have they seen? What has caught their attention? Well, he says, their signs, the signs that Jesus has been doing has caught their attention. The signs are incredible and they're impactful to those who are witnessing Jesus' signs in Jerusalem at Passover AD 30. The, the initial impact is to believe that God's favor is on Jesus in the doing of these signs. That's the initial impact of these signs. Now this this understanding that these men have come to is a really low entry point in the evaluation of Jesus' signs. Really low entry point. Oh, I think God's with you. You're doing really cool signs. God must put his favor on you. That's, that's a low entry point. These are miracles, people. This is miraculous, supernatural. This is divine activity that Jesus is engaged in in Jerusalem. It's overwhelmingly obvious that God's favor rests on Jesus. Even children can come up with that answer. More must be expected of the leaders and teachers of Israel. They need to come up with the Apostle John's explanation for Jesus' signs, which is what? Jesus is God. That's what they should come up with. We should expect that of the leaders in Jerusalem, the religious elite of the day. Leon Morris says, Nicodemus begins with a courteous, even flattering address. He says, we must notice that he regards Jesus as a teacher only and that he has as yet no perception of the real nature of him whom he sought out. He has come as one teacher to another, on par. He thinks he's coming with an equal. He's come as one teacher to another, says Morris, to discuss matters of mutual interest. And I would ask you, how can Nicodemus value Jesus as an equal? Isn't that in and of itself prideful? What signs has Nicodemus performed that the people are believing in Nicodemus? Are the people believing in Nicodemus' signs? Shall he take Jesus, who is performing signs at the hand and power of God, and pull Jesus down to his level so that we're both two teachers? Like, we're on the same level. We're at, we're at ministry in here in Jerusalem together. Really? It seems to me that if Nicodemus had honor for Jesus in his heart, he would not try to treat Jesus as his equal, but rather as his superior it seems to me that Nicodemus uses this title, rabbi, to hold Jesus down at his level. D.A. Carson says, at one level, this assessment of Jesus must be judged disappointing. Nicodemus does not suggest Jesus as a prophet, still less the, pro the prophet or the Messiah, but simply a teacher mightily endowed with God's power. You see, friends, I'm not sold on Nicodemus' humility in this passage. I'm not sold on that. I'm not sold that his coming is curiosity. I'm not sold on humility. I'm not sold on curiosity. John MacArthur says, Nicodemus addressed Jesus as an equal. He did not share the suspicions and the hostility that many of his fellow religious leaders had toward Christ. Now, respectfully, from this pulpit, I disagree with Pastor John MacArthur, so shoot me now. Sign my pink slip. Send me packing. You know, I used to see the text this way. I used to see in Nicodemus a kind, polite, humble, meek Nicodemus. But I know the amount of deception that abides and resides in the human heart. I know the sinfulness and deception in my own heart. I've seen sinfulness and deception in the hearts of counselees. The human heart is wicked and sinful, desperately sick. Who can know it? The context here addresses the evil of the human heart in 2.25, just two verses before. And there is reason to consider, just like I was entirely combative and hostile before I was saved, that Nicodemus has the same hostility in his heart like all men as they fight to hold on to their fake, phony salvation which they've spent years believing and investing into. Nicodemus, like so many other false teachers and heretics, holding on to the salvation that he's made for himself because 
You know, he was teaching in the church, serving communion, ushering, greeting. Maybe Nicodemus was the guy that brought the donuts and mowed the lawn. Certainly he was one who was found observing and keeping all manner of man-made traditions. Again, he's got a lot at stake. A lot at stake. Edward Clink says, Most theologians offer a misguided reconstruction of Nicodemus, which says this, quote, This is the reconstruction that is misguided, according to Clink. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with a genuine openness, acknowledging that Jesus is credentialed by God. He seems to be guilty of nothing more than befuddlement before a confusing revelation that Jesus has given. Edward Clink goes on to say, This opening address is a formal initiation to a social challenge dialogue. He says, All the titles and statements reflect a recognizable form of honorific flattery without any sense of genuineness until the dialogue continues. Nicodemus, he says, is initiating with Jesus a verbal contest. With a creative maneuver, he says, Nicodemus jabs at Jesus in a manner that on the surface sounds entirely complimentary, but at a deeper level is combative hyperbole, intended, listen, intended to challenge the very things that it claims. Jesus' warrant to serve as a teacher and religious authority. Clint goes on to say, since the shaming, that is the shaming of Jesus at the scourging of the temple, since the shaming they tried to attribute Jesus during the temple cleansing incident, it seems to have not affected Jesus. Because of this, as a result of this, what was needed was a more direct and more formal shaming of Jesus. And for this, the Jews selected one of their most prominent ruling officials, a member of one of the most honorable and influential families that enjoyed a long history of conquering enemies of Judaism. The more I've studied this story, the more I see out of Nicodemus manipulation and flattery with evil motivations and intentions. And this observation makes me ask the question, why, God? Why? Why did Nicodemus show up hostile to confront Jesus? And why did the Apostle John record this story? Out of all the stories that he could have recorded, why this one? The answer, friends, is contrast. Contrast. This is about as stark a contrast as you'll ever get. Second birth style contrast. So that we might arrive at certainty in our understanding of the second birth. John wants to get his readers to certainty in the sovereignty of God and salvation, even to the power of God to cause men to become born again, regardless of how evil, wicked, sinful, manipulative, cunning, scheming they approach Jesus. That if he wants to save, he'll save anybody. In our text today, John records two contrasting salvations known by Nicodemus and Jesus. John highlights two kingdom entrance plans which clarify the path to eternal life. So we need to ask the question, what two kingdom entrance plans are contrasted for clarity regarding the salvation of men? So we see in our text the first of two kingdom entrance plans is number one, the salvation of men, and the second of two kingdom entrance plans is number two, the salvation of God. These two kingdom entrance plans are abundantly clear here in the text. The salvation of men, number one, and the salvation of God, number two. The entrance to eternal life is not controlled, brothers and sisters, by the religious elite. And to this, everyone should say, praise God, hallelujah, amen. Because entrance to life is exclusively guarded by our Father in heaven, who causes men to be born again. You can see this so clearly if you look back at John 1.12 where the Apostle John tells us that salvation is thrown by God into the hearts of men intentionally without asking them over the top of their free will. And as a result, those who are graced by God with the, you could say, football pass of salvation, they are the ones who are aided to appropriately receive the salvation that was thrown to them. 
John says in John 1.12, but as many as caught him, as many as received him, having been thrown the pass, to those ones Jesus gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Negative, 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 no way. But these ones were spiritually reborn, verse 13, of God. Brothers and sisters, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what David says in Psalm 3.8. The exact opposite of salvation belongs to the Lord is salvation happens on the terms of men. Which brings us to point number one in our notes. The first of two kingdom entrance plans. The first of two kingdom entrance plans. The salvation of men. The salvation of men. Salvation on men's terms. Nicodemus' name, it means one who conquers people. Or victory over the people. Richard Bauckham did significant research into the name Nicodemus, which is a Greek name. He did this research among Jewish families around the time of the first century. His research revealed only four Palestinian Jews between the years 330 BC and 200 AD that had the name Nicodemus. Further still, all four of those men belonged to the same family. What family? The Gurion family. The Gurion family. It is believed that the name Nicodemus made its way into the Gurion family during the Hasmonean period. Nicodemus is victory, which Nicodemus, which means victory over the people. It would have been a laudatory nickname given in praise for a Gurion family patriarch who was extremely accomplished in military battle. And in that 400-year period, the Hasmonean period, from the time of the last prophets until Jesus' arrival, there would have been many opportunities for military conquest and battle. This nickname, Nicodemus, would have been favorably then passed down and likely lived up to in each successive generation. Isn't that interesting? Nicodemus was most likely part of the Gurion family. Brothers and sisters, what is the airport that you fly into when you land in Israel? Oh, it's the Ben-Gurion International Airport. And what was the name of the guy who declared the state of Israel resurrected in 1948? What was the name that I told you earlier? Oh, it was David Ben-Gurion. You know, David Ben-Gurion was not born David Ben-Gurion. He was born David Gruen in Poland in 1886. But at the age of 20, David Gruen was a zealous Zionist who moved to Palestine and adopted for himself the Gurion family name, which means son of a lion and has a rich military heritage for those men who were bringing salvation to Israel, as it were. Friends, Judaism had become and remains the celebration of men and men's ways, not the celebration of God and God's ways. The Jews are more ready to exalt and praise their own victories over men rather than God's victories over the hearts of men. They practice as a nation salvation on men's terms, not salvation on God's terms. And so, in Nicodemus, we find a man who would truly like to himself conquer Jesus. He really needs Jesus to obey the rituals and the traditions of the elite Jewish men who run the Sanhedrin. Otherwise, all their salvation hope is lost. He would really like to achieve victory over Jesus in this conversation, but he has no idea that he is actually speaking with the Lion of Judah himself who is reading the sinful thoughts and intentions of Nicodemus' heart when he says in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, brothers and sisters, generally, as Christians, we must believe the best about people's intentions. When they speak to us, we must believe the best. At the same time, we are called to be discerning. Have you ever sat in a room with a liar? Have you ever had someone directly lie to you in the face and go out and live a life that's contrary to what they told you in person? Is there a possibility that that could be the case right here in the text? I believe it is. What shall we make of these words of Nicodemus? Friends, this 
comment from Nicodemus in John 3.2 is entirely manipulation and flattery. Andreas Kossenberger says, we shouldn't take these comments at face value, especially when we recognize Nicodemus lived in a culture where people commonly extended the expected opening pleasantries before getting to the point of their visit. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus didn't fall for the flattery either. And again, I want you to consider the context. What did we just read in John 2.25? The Apostle John is trying to tell you something with this story. He says that Jesus doesn't trust the people who were believing in his signs. He knows the hearts of all men. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12? We'll look at verse 22. More than flattery, this is the outworking, Nicodemus' comment that is in John 3, 2. His comment is the outworking of Nicodemus' twisted theology of salvation by men. This is, in John 3, 2, an attempt by Nicodemus to get Jesus to play religious leader ball on the Pharisee's level and invite him into the club and make him feel welcome, but only if he agrees to their terms, conditions, and restrictions. And you might ask, what are those terms, conditions, and restrictions that Nicodemus is asking Jesus to come and play ball on with the Pharisees at their level? Because, hey, look, we're all rabbis. Hey, Jesus, we're all just rabbis. We're all doing the same kind of ministry around here. But there are some who are doing ministry more equal than others. <laughs> That's what Nicodemus believes. What are these terms? Nicodemus is saying in John 3, 2, he's saying, Jesus, acknowledge the authority of the Sanhedrin. Acknowledge the authority of the Sanhedrin, Jesus. Jesus, you need to acknowledge the authority of the Sanhedrin. You need to identify yourself as equal with us. We are willing to give you the title rabbi and treat you as equal, but only if you submit to us. You need the salvation only we can give you. You may have power to do signs, but you, Jesus, you will need our stamp of approval that your signs are from God. You need to have our stamp of approval. You need to have that measure of salvation. After all, if your signs are from God, you will want equality with us and membership on our team because we're the ruling religious leaders in Jerusalem. We're the teachers of God. We're the representatives of God on earth. Do you understand this, Jesus? Does this make sense, Jesus? Jesus, are you on board? You get it? Can we get a, can we get a confirmation out of you? Wink, wink. Nod, nod. Friends, does Jesus need the salvation and affirmation of the Jews that they're offering? Not at all. Do the Jews sit in judgment over him? Can Jesus only teach the kingdom of God on terms given to him by Nicodemus and the Jews? Shall Jesus slow down his sign-working, salvation-giving, kingdom of God-declaring ministry until he has the full approval of all the Pharisees and all of the Sanhedrin? Absolutely not. How can their bad theology harm Jesus' ministry? Why would Nicodemus come and, and offer a man-made salvation to Jesus? Why is he offering a salvation to Jesus in this flattering manipulation comments? What happens if Jesus doesn't take the bait? What happens if Jesus doesn't take the salvation that's being offered in John 3.2? Well, it happens. You're in Matthew 12, verse 22. Where Matthew reports, Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts... Jesus said to those Pharisees, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by, which, by whom then do your sons cast out demons? For this reason, they will be your judges. But... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then understand this, you Pharisees. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Here are the Pharisees, Nicodemus' twisted spiritual brothers. 
using their extremely bad theology to try to condemn, defame, and denounce Jesus' sign-working, second-birth-giving, free tickets to the kingdom of God's salvation ministry. This interaction makes me believe that Nicodemus went back to his Pharisee brothers in the Sanhedrin and told them, you know what, guys? Jesus didn't accept our offer to become part of the club. He didn't agree to salvation that we planned to give him if he would have just submitted and obeyed us. Now we're going to have to go out and tell the people that these works aren't really happening by the power of God. We're going to have to lie about this man and tell him these works are clearly by the power of Satan because he doesn't want to be one of us. He's clearly not on our team, so he's clearly working for Satan. Turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Regarding Jesus and signs, R.C. Sproul says, such authenticating miracles would have been completely useless if non-agents of revelation like Satan could have been performing such works. Satan can perform incredibly clever tricks, but they are not true miracles. They are phony signs because Satan is not God. Brothers and sisters, Nicodemus' words come from a darkened and wicked heart. He approached Jesus at night, where behind the veil of manipulation and flattery, Nicodemus was threatening Jesus' ministry by offering the salvation of men in order to get the endorsement of the Sanhedrin and the Jews that Jesus' signs were actually from God and not Satan. Jesus would need to submit to them to save his earthly ministry. Entrance into the kingdom of God for, from Nicodemus' perspective begins with man's submission to man, especially man's submission to elite religious men. Nicodemus' kingdom entrance plan is very simple. The spiritual condition that you want to arrive at, which is God with you, that spiritual condition, it's available only to those who obey the Sanhedrin. We are the ones who control salvation. Salvation happens on our terms. Any other salvation plan must be destroyed. And we will use lies and manipulation and deception and cunning and schemes to make sure that your ministry, Jesus, is thwarted. Because the salvation that you offer is not our salvation, and we're the ones who own salvation, not you. How does Jesus respond to Nicodemus' twisted theology and failed man-centered salvation? R.C. Sproul says, in his characteristic way, he went straight to the heart of the issue. Jesus wasn't interested in diplomacy. He was interested in truth and in redemption. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. The second of two kingdom entrance plans. Number two in your notes. We have arrived at, brothers and sisters, the salvation of God. We have moved away from the salvation of men. And we have moved into the salvation of God. Jesus should be flabbergasted at Nicodemus' flattery, manipulation, offer of salvation, and veiled threat. But he is not because Jesus is God. And instead of getting frustrated by this man who represents the worst elements of human depravity, Jesus remains cool, calm, and collected in addition to being extremely evangelistic and confrontational, which we see as we read John 3, 3. John 3, 3, I, I really, as we read this, I really want you to think about this. Jesus' words match nothing of what Nicodemus said. They match nothing of what Nicodemus said. And that, to me, is just an indication that Jesus saw in Nicodemus' words straight-out manipulation and flattery, lies and deception. And he's got to get right to the heart of the issue. And we read, Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the born-again formality, brothers and sisters. This is God-centered, monergistic salvation. This is Calvinism 101 short class. This is a PSA. This is a kind of public service announcement, but more importantly, this is the premier salvation analogy. Jesus doesn't bother answering to Nicodemus' flattery for one second. Having read the intentions of Nicodemus' heart and the manipulations and scheming in his mind, Jesus unleashed the sword of his mouth and struck a death blow to Nicodemus' self-righteous soul and his worthless offer of man-made salvation on his terms. Leon Morris says, Then, in one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. 
Andreas Kostenberger says, for the first century Palestinian Jew, how people enter God's kingdom was a vital question. Poor Nicodemus. Poor Nicodemus, as one of Israel's elite ruling class Pharisees, he thought that he was one of the guys who controlled access to the kingdom of God. And in this moment, Jesus shatters every bit of his bad theology, which included his wicked understanding of works-based salvation, his race-based salvation, and his understanding that access to the kingdom of God comes through title, authority, and family lineage. John MacArthur says the implication of Jesus' word for Nicodemus were staggering. There's so much in Jesus' response to Nicodemus to unpack at John 3.3 that I will need to move the full explanation of the born-again formality into next week. And everyone said, amen. <laughs> the second of two kingdom entrance plans, point number two, the salvation of God will have to wait in full for next week. I don't think any of us will mind slowing down a bit and covering John 3, 3, all by itself in one lesson next week. So next week, the born-again formality, part number two, the salvation of God. That's the title for next week's lesson. For today, it is best to soak in and absorb the immense contrast between the man, Nicodemus, and the God-man, Jesus. Consider, friends, all of the contrasts in the text. Man and God, light and dark, birth and death, belief and unbelief, good and evil, manipulation, and genuine salvation. If you're going to fully grasp the salvation Jesus is intending in John 3.3, 3, you need to consider the depth of depravity in the heart of Nicodemus contrasted with the 18-word truth bomb that Jesus exploded right over the top of his head in this text. Are you turning your Bibles to John 7.43? I hope you are asking of the text in John 3, 3, what kind of evangelism is this, Jesus? Where is the love? Where is the patience? Where is the belief that Nicodemus is a man who is kind and humble, nice, and Nicodemus is just curious, Jesus? Why did you blast him? He's just a curious, humble guy. Jesus really didn't treat Nicodemus like a curious, humble seeker, did he? Not at all. Instead, Jesus took out one smooth salvation stone-type comment from his belt and fired it right between Nicodemus's unexpecting eyes. How does Nicodemus respond? Well, in the John 3 conversation, Nicodemus is flabbergasted by Jesus' answer. His mind is so moved to the absurdity of Jesus' God-driven salvation and second birth analogy that Nicodemus asks a couple of absurd questions out of his great frustration. And by the end of the conversation, we see that he is moved to silence. He's got nothing left to say. And before we close our time, I want to show you how the spiritual winds of salvation blow. You're in John 7:43. What do we see from Nicodemus here? Jerusalem is divided because of Jesus' teaching at the Feast of Booths in late September, AD 32. John says in John 7:43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him, that is because of Jesus. And some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken like this. The Pharisees then answered them, Have you also been led astray? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus he who came to him before, being one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, the Pharisees, does our law judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing? They answered him, are you also one from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, brothers and sisters, on one hand, the Pharisees acknowledged that not one of the rulers or, or Pharisees had defected and believed in Jesus. But on the other hand, in this text, in the same context, John records that Nicodemus challenged the obedience of the Pharisees to the law that they claimed to uphold. And so we ask, what are we to make of this? Why would John record this? And most importantly, what is happening now, months late, years later, in Nicodemus' heart? Why does he appear to both defend Jesus and at the same time attack his fellow Pharisees. Turn your Bibles to John 19, verse 38. John 19, 38. James Boyce rightly says, if the example of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is to teach anything to us, it is to teach that education 
Religious education is not the answer to man's spiritual unrest and longing. The answer, friends, to man's spiritual unrest and longing for eternity is salvation given by God, second birth by the Spirit, which often comes through a bold confrontation to the hearts of humanity by Jesus Christ himself. Clearly, Passover 8030 is when Jesus graciously and confrontationally attacked Nicodemus' heart. It seems that Jesus' confrontational evangelism, that confrontational evangelism, ooh, was just the kind of assault that Nicodemus' heart needed to allow the spiritual winds of change to work regeneration right through him. And you might ask, what could make us draw the conclusion that Nicodemus was ultimately born again? Can we draw that conclusion? Can we come to that place? What was happening there in chapter 7? Well, let's look at chapter 19, where you are now, where Jesus just cried out on the cross to tell us that it is finished and allowed himself to die a death of crucifixion on the cross at Calvary to atone for the sins of all those who would ever believe, specifically those who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And there he is. His side was pierced through, Jesus was, and then Jesus was taken down from that cross. And we read John's report in 1938. Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission to Joseph of Arimathea. And so Joseph came and took away his body. And Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came with Joseph of Arimathea, bringing himself a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 liters. And so they, together, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they, Joseph and Nicodemus, laid Jesus there. Here's Nicodemus, friends. The leading teacher of Jerusalem, the Pharisee, seated on the Sanhedrin, helping to care for and transport the body of Jesus carefully, faithfully, properly, after the horror of his crucifixion. Who would do this except someone who was given entrance to the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit? No one. What Pharisee in his right mind would offer such care to a convicted, crucified criminal? None of them. The, the only one who would do this, the only one who would take these actions is the Pharisee who was born again. That's who would do this. The Pharisee who received salvation by God, not salvation of his own hands. The Pharisee who was rebuked. The Pharisee who was confronted. The Pharisee who was the farthest away from Jesus, even in a personal meeting in John chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus is here at the end of Jesus' life because Jesus gave him spiritual eyes to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has a love for Jesus that can only be explained by the grace of God and salvation and certainty of the second birth applied to him. Whatever trouble Nicodemus was going to encounter with the Pharisees, evidently he felt prepared enough to deal with it. Again, an attitude of those who are born again. It seems that the Spirit blew salvation, friends, into the heart of Nicodemus. The Lord Jesus Christ saved the soul of the sin-filled Pharisee and strengthened him for spiritual battles that would rage between he and his fellow Pharisees for years to come. The question for you this morning is, has Jesus saved your soul? Are you, this morning, friend, born again? How will you enter the kingdom of God eternally Will you do that on the strength of your own hands, the strength of your own mind, the force of your own physical world possessions? Friends, the whole lesson is right here in front of us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You can't save yourself. Don't manufacture a salvation. Nicodemus had. He was, close, he was as close to the kingdom of God as anyone has ever been and was totally spiritually blind. If he was saved, and it truly appears that he was, it could only be a result of the grace of our God. That's salvation. Would you pray with me?